0: Welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica. I'm Alok Jha. We hear plenty about the glories of men like Scott and Shackleton, who lived in and explored Antarctica. But what about the women? This week I'm speaking to Sarah Wheeler and Camilla Nichol. Sarah was the US National Science Foundation's first female writer in residence at the South Pole. She spent seven months in Antarctica. From there, she wrote international bestseller, Terra Incognita. She also wrote Cherry, a life of Apsley Cherry Garrard, who was one of the youngest members of Captain Scott's final expedition to the Antarctic. Camilla is chief executive of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. She is a geologist and has worked in the museums and heritage sector for more than 20 years. She's held positions at the Leeds Museums and Galleries and York Museums Trust. When she was working for the Hunterian Museum at Glasgow University, she helped uncover a collection of Antarctic rocks collected by James Wordie on Elephant Island. Camilla is a Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Camilla, who were the first women on Antarctica? Do we know?
1: Yeah, well, we do, kind of, yes. There's anecdotal evidence of um, some very early women uh, reaching sort of, Antarctic waters, um, possibly sort of indigenous Maori uh, New Zealanders uh, visiting um, on on boats into the Antarctic uh, Ocean. But um, so sort of, hard evidence of uh, the earliest woman in Antarctica uh, didn't come to light really until 1985, uh, when a skull was found on, the, on a beach on one of the South Shetland Islands. Um, and it turned out, after analysis, it turned out to be a young indigenous woman from uh, Chile so probably deriving from the southernmost parts of chile in the beagle channel area um, and was dated to have died uh, between 1819 and 1825 so this is the actual moment that antarctica was discovered 200 years ago but um, we don't know any more than that about her story really but we kind there's a presumption that she was uh, probably part of a sealer's expedition um accompanying her husband probably um on the on a ship um but we do know that um these are the ships that were visiting at that time. And, uh, you know, she was, she was probably the first woman uh, sort of recorded, really, uh, to have visited Antarctica. And unfortunately,
0: in, it seems, died there too.
1: Indeed, yes. Well, these are harsh conditions. Certainly, in the analysis does uh, point to some of the causes of her death and malnutrition and uh, uh, injuries um, as well. So, uh, yes, yeah, certainly not a, a happy ending to her story. Um, she was a, a date age to about, about 21 years of age. But in terms of the first kind of recorded woman uh, to set foot in Antarctica for sure, um, that we now have actual records of, was a Danish explorer called Caroline Mikkelsen um, in 1935, and she accompanied her husband on an expedition um, to find uh, islands that Norway could claim um, ownership of uh, during the sort of peak of the whaling industry. Um, and she she was the first recorded woman um, to have set foot in Antarctica uh, at that at that early time.
0: So. It seems like um, the women were there f- from the early years, but why was Antarctica known as the womanless continent for so long in the 20th century? I mean, is that is that a fair assessment of, uh, of how it was seen?
1: Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, the records of uh, female sort of activity in Antarctica between the 1820s and the 1930s doesn't reflect much in the way of female exploration or expeditioners. Um, but it's likely that women form part of the crews of ships sailing to the Antarctic, accompanying their husbands generally. Um, but as history often shows, you know, the evidence of women's activity anywhere just isn't documented. And so they remain what are known as whalers' wives, which is rather <laughs> diminutive, really. Um, but... You know, as the 20th century progressed into the heroic era of exploration uh, and into the scientific era later on, Antarctica was viewed for a long time as a place for men. The environment, the climate, and the facilities, of course, were just too harsh for women, and women are far too um, sensitive, really, for such a difficult place. And I think this sort of is paralleled, I think, probably at the same time with the arguments against women in the military. I think they're too weak to cope in a crisis. Uh, there's a likelihood of catfights, obviously. Um, and of course, they, they're irresistible. Uh, there is irresistible charms um, and they're distracting allure to men in the field. So the women were sort of heavily discouraged from being in Antarctica.
2: There was a famous episode, famous now, when a scientist had applied, a female scientist had applied to go and um, the uh, authorities wrote back sort of saying, well, it's not really suitable and trying to think of a lot of different ways of saying that. They said, well, women wouldn't be comfortable in the Antarctic because there are no shops and hairdressers. And that was deemed to be enough of a reason to keep pesky
0: women out. The women who did start going in in the 20th century, um, you know, what what did they go as, as first you mentioned whalers' wives do, uh, which is not a very uh, 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 sort of a fair term um, but then also people were going um in in the 20th century did they go as explorers um, first did they come as go as scientists? what was the sort of um development of that?
1: Yeah, both really. I mean, certainly, I would say probably scientists first. To be honest, um, I think uh, it took a long time for women to be allowed. I mean, they spent an awful lot of time sort of working supporting roles um, back at home. So maybe in you know in the UK, at the uh, equivalent of the British Antarctic surveys offices, for example working as scientists and doing the science, but not being allowed to get onto the ice. And they even worked in the ships. They were allowed to do science from the ships, but not allowed necessarily to get onto the ice. But it wasn't until slightly later, really, that women started to sort of to uh, penetrate i suppose into the antarctic um i mean early on we knew we know women were included in expeditions as as they accompanied their husbands um there were some early pioneers in exploration and science and in the 50s and 60s we started to see more and more women um making their mark um I mean, they were even taking leadership roles in, and decision-making roles uh, in science and and uh, in su- in support of Antarctic research uh, back home. So there were there certainly a, a female presence. It's just they weren't allowed on the stations. Um, so it's, it's there was a considerable resistance to women being there, and um, it was a certain environment that was difficult for women to be. I think. Um, I think that, that uh, there is a case to support the idea that women were kept out of this men's club. The Antarctic was seen as a place for men, as a place to, you know... Uh uh, for, for men to be um, to conquer and it was uncomfortable for women to be uh, in terms of the conditions that were set up there so you know put it this way I suppose there was a, perhaps a more of a locker room culture uh, on some of the bases right up until, until the 80s and 90s um, and certainly you know, I was graduating in the early 90s and I uh, was looking at careers as a geologist and there was certainly something off-putting about working um, uh, for women working in the Antarctic even then so it's a, it has always been a difficult place, but women, have, as, as in all areas of life, have, have persisted and, and crashed through those glass or ice ceilings. Um, but and now, and now we see, you know, great great accomplishments in science uh, and in leadership, but also in, in exploration and some wonderful accomplishments um, in, in Antarctic exploration by women.
0: Are, are there any stories of uh, women in Antarctica that um, stand out for you um, as as sort of battling against these odds that you've outlined so uh, so eloquently?
1: Well, I think there's some. Um... Uh, some you know, there's loads, loads of interesting stories but I think one of, some, one of my favourite ones which kind of touched one of the historic sites that we look after was the story of um, uh, Jackie Ronnie and uh, uh, Jenny Darlington who uh, accompanied their husbands on the Finn Ronnie expedition 1946 1946-48 and they were basically they sailed down on the ship down um, through Chile and they were just going to accompany their husbands to Valparaiso or maybe Punta Arenas and then wave them off but they were persuaded uh, when they get to got to Valparaiso to oh, why don't you just Stay let's let's come. Why don't you come? Um, they, Jenny Darlington, and Harry Darlington were newlyweds, so we didn't particularly want to be apart for two years. I think, um, and they were persuaded, and it necessitated a, you know a little shopping trip to get a warmer nighty and a pair of boots, obviously. Um, but and they persist, and they went down to Stonington Island. They stayed at East Base uh, over winter, and they became the first women to overwinter in Antarctica. And this was in 1947, so very early. Uh, it was a last minute decision. Um, and a number of the other members of the crew were not happy. And they did actually put together a petition to say that the women shouldn't come. But they, they did go. Um, and they both wrote books afterwards. Um, and they were they are a terrific read. But their experience was coloured not only by um, being women in this very difficult place to live, very male place, very uh, difficult Uh, environmental and and, uh, climatic circumstances, but also the kind of personal interactions, how uh, the people got along. And actually there were terrible fallings out. Uh, There was a great great rift in, in the in the team, in, in, amongst the men in the team, as well as uh, between the women. Um, and actually, Jenny Darlington became pregnant, which also added to the tension, I think, whilst they were there. But it, it, their accounts are extraordinary. And I think just looking at kind of the human condition, I think, and, and how humans and people can survive in difficult situations and how they cope is, is a really interesting, interesting story. So I'd recommend um, their books um, very, very highly. But um I think on their return. I mean, Jenny Darlington certainly didn't recommend Antarctica to women in the future, saying women just don't belong in Antarctica. But I think I'm, I'm you know, I think now I think that has been disproven over, over, over and over ever since.
0: When you were there, what was the mix of men and women like? I'm assuming it wasn't equal, but what were you seeing? america was quite evolved, not quite as
2: evolved as Russia at that time in terms of women on the job, but um lots of women. Um it was maybe uh maybe uh 35% women in America and it would be 50% on the Russian basis. And uh, maybe it would have been 25% in the um, Italian and uh, Eastern European countries who were there, pretty good. So it what does not feel like an endangered species? Um, the British came a bit later to the party um, and there was very few, when I say very few, uh, when I arrived there were none. Um, and that has now changed.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's certainly much, much better than it has been. I mean, uh, women have been kind of really heavily and actively involved in Antarctica, I think most significantly now, for the last 20 years. Um, And we're looking at a much, much more equal um, ratio of men to women uh, in working in Antarctica, both... And they're working in roles in science, in exploration, in field support, in tourism, uh, in governance, uh, in heritage, in my field, um, and also environmental campaigning. So you're seeing, um, you know, a, a great, a greater breadth of um, human activity in Antarctica, but also uh, many, many more women there. Um, you know, bases are now set up, of course, uh, for, for both genders. Um, so, it's, you know, it's, it is an easier, much, much easier place to live and work than it might have been in 1947 for um, Jenny and Jackie. But, um, you know, there's still more to do, and I think there's there's a lot more to do with diversity generally in Antarctica. And there's um, lots lots uh, of talk about that, and, and lot, a lot of um, organisations pushing to improve diversity generally. But um, you know, you're seeing female leadership. You're seeing some incredible um, accomplishments by women in science, in, in in climate science, and in and in exploration. So it's it is, uh, and they're doing this visibly. So it is it is great.
2: It is great to see. The crucial thing is, is that uh, girls and young women going through the education system, if they're interested in a particular branch of the science, they are going to see role models. And um, I think that's what's important. I mean, female role models in their field.
0: I mean, you talk about leadership. I mean, you're obviously, you're the chief executive of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. And, and for this podcast series, we've also spoken to Professor Dame Jane Francis, who's director of the British Antarctic Survey. So evidently, female leadership... Is now very much on the continent. Has that changed anything?
1: I think it has. I think the you know I think Dame Jane particularly is a, a huge role model. She's a role model for me when I was a student. Um, so I think seeing women in leadership roles in Antarctica is is incredibly inspiring for a lot of people. I think there are many more women now reaching for the polar regions in general for their careers, whether it's in science or field support, tourism, heritage, um, and I think female leadership offers offers those role models, offers visibility and and uh, uh, the ability for you know women to, to do whatever they want, um, you know, with their careers, and as with any sector, the involvement of women in leadership brings you know huge benefits and the stability, uh, sort of more balanced decision making, uh, b- broader reaching and impactful decision making, and wider inclusivity. So I think um, where you see benefits in female leadership in, in in business, you you see it in Antarctica. I think even more so in Antarctica because you're seeing a place that international eyes are looking at antarctica so you know everybody all nations have a all antarctic treaty nations have a stake in in the future success, success of antarctica so seeing female leadership around for example the antarctic treaty table is incredibly important and it's 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 a beacon for how you know international collaborations can work elsewhere
0: what was it like the first time you went to antarctica how did you feel what was it like
1: My first trip to Antarctica, it was mind-blowing. I went to the Ross Sea and visited the explorers' huts of Scott and Shackleton as a guest of the New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust. And just the uh, experience of camping outside um, Captain Scott's hut at Cape Evans, and you unzip your tent and look at Mount Erebus smoking gently on the horizon, and you turn around and there's this iconic hut, and you're seeing the landscape that Scott saw you know 110 years previously um it was just um mind-blowing it was mind-blowing these are stories you know i, I grew up with these are, um i remember reading the diaries uh, and dreaming of, of visiting and seeing these places and having and doing that for real for the first time you know uh, six years ago it was astonishing um, and life-changing Really, um, I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather work, um, to be honest. And uh, it it just has fired me up to to do the best we you know as a uh, we possibly can as a trust to to play our part in in what we do in Antarctica. It's it was, uh, it was, it was life changing and gives you a perspective of your place in the planet. I think it makes you feel quite
0: small, which I think is uh, n- never a bad thing. After seven months there did you start to feel like it might be home or at least familiar in some way? Oh, gosh, yeah, massively, massively. Uh, And you start
2: sort of thinking about um, uh, how alienating uh, it will be. And it was alienating to come back. And I think that's a common experience. Um, To a certain extent, I felt more at home there than I've ever felt anywhere. And that's because one, I was completely unmoored, as everybody is who goes there from all the trappings of life you know gas bills and all all the rest of it um and uh i think that um and i i did feel more at home there than i've ever felt anywhere and i don't think that's an uncommon experience from what i've read uh of other people's experiences in the antarctic and also uh what i colleagues of mine friends of mine i made on the ice
0: even though there was nothing tethering you to a schedule to normal things that might make you feel at home wherever you live
2: yeah, I think it's more meaningful, a sense of being at home, being at one with the landscape, when all these other things that are confections of man do not pinning you down. I think that um, it's a more meaningful sense of home. It's a sense of being at home on the planet.
0: We we've heard um, from many people in this podcast series, and we will hear again about the future of Antarctica and how um, climate change is you know altering the landscape um, and how it, it's uh, the sort of the, the the melting ice there is is a harbinger for what's to come for the planet. D- do we need to be concerned about the future for this continent?
1: I think we should. Yes, and we should always be always be concerned. I think there are great uh initiatives there are great accomplishments and you know the 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 international collaboration that there is um around uh the governance of antarctica and the decision making around antarctica is is incredibly uh powerful and and a model for many other parts of the world i think but it's i think there is there's no reason to be complacent i think um climate change and the climate crisis is incredibly difficult it is it is real and it's changing our planet um and i think uh you know we need to be making the right decisions for antarctica and for the rest of the planet um in order to to preserve it for the future i think so yes we should be concerned we should, we should always be thinking actively about what we how we can do better um so yes i mean i think also i think how antarctica was used i mean uh, the, the treaty is robust the environmental protocol is a is, um, piece of legislation which does come for review um, and so that protection of Antarctica it should be you know considered carefully it's how what the future in the next 50 years of Antarctica should be under under global governance. Um, these decisions that are going to be taken by you know those uh, children who are sort of 12 to 14 now it's these kids who are going to be around that table in the in the future renegotiating the environmental protocols so it's it's incumbent on us to inspire that generation to uh, to take that responsibility carefully and seriously and make those right choices
0: all these problems do exist and the changes are coming um, and the scientists you spoke to and many others have, have been warning us about these things there seems to be a role then for people like you to go to antarctica to tell others what it's like and uh, potentially what we're going to lose not only from a scientific and environmental point of view, but this, you know, this enormous desert the size of Australia—something that's impossible for humans to comprehend in our busy lives in cities and countries and uh, in normal places—and um, having something like that on the planet is quite remarkable and awe-inspiring. I think reminding people of that constantly through books and art seems to me to be very important, right? I think so,
2: certainly. And it's very important that all those books and pieces of art aren't created by men. That would be a very peculiar thing if we had a ske- such a skewed picture. So, yes, I mean, information and the whole point of oddballs like me going down, I think, is that, is to be able to com- convey information um, about about the continent that's, that's not uh, exclusively written in the language that scientists can understand. Yeah, I think really
1: important because, I mean, I think, you know, t- I hate to say it, but you know, science isn't for everyone, and it doesn't always doesn't turn everybody on. So, but Antarctica does. I mean, you talk to. I mean, I, when I started working Antarctica six years ago, and said, oh, "What would I do for a job?" I mean, everybody is interested in Antarctica. So, looking at different ways to talk about. Antarctica to talk about the impact we're having on Antarctica and vice versa to um, explore Antarctic stories through different eyes and different voices just brings a richness, brings a diversity, brings more people around the table, I think. And I think that's really important. It's something we're trying to do with Antarctica Insights, the reason for this podcast series, is about exploring different people's perceptions, perspectives and, and experiences um, of, of Antarctica and, and what it means to everyone. Um, I mean, Antarctica is incredibly important to us on our planet, um, and you know, we all know that it matters. But uh, getting different voices—creative voices, cultural, historical, scientific uh, voices—to explore those themes, I think, can be incredibly powerful to engage more people. And so, I think, you know, the more of that, the better, from my point of view, really.
0: What, what do you think? What do you see the role of um, the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust as in terms of the kind of things you want to raise awareness about for the continent?
1: Sure. I mean, we're um, uh, not a scientific organisation, but what they, what we do we do look after is the heritage. So we um, can use those incredible stories of human endeavour, Antarctica, scientific accomplishment in the early days. Uh, we can bring a long view to uh, the contemporary science. So you might be you might see in the headlines stories of um, the recovery of blue whales in the Southern Ocean, for example, and we can we can track back. Um, that science to the er- the early origins of uh, the discovery investigations in the 1920s um, to uh, the you know uh, whale studies and early early whale studies in the 1960s 50s and 60s so we can offer a long view take that heritage perspective which can actually engage people in, in a different way to the to the maybe the cold hard science which um, we are exposed to on a daily basis so I think the inspiring human stories the human connection of uh, people in Antarctica and their experience can can tell an awful lot of, of about um antarctica and a different in pers- a, a new perspective which i think uh, adds to the story um you know the Antar- antarctica is famous for being a, the last wilderness but actually it's a it's a theater of some extraordinary human endeavor and some extraordinary human stories so it's a, it's our privilege at ukht to be able to share those and help people explore them uh, to help better understand antarctica
0: why does antarctica matter to you
2: Antarctica matters to me because it's the only unowned place on the planet and therefore I think a symbol of what could be, what we can aspire to, something for humankind to aspire to. And certainly uh, it's the most beautiful place I've ever been and I sometimes still go there in my dreams.
1: Antarctica reminds me daily, I think, of how privileged we are as, as a human race to be custodians of our planet. Um, and over the last few centuries, we've perhaps not acquitted ourselves terribly well, I would say. Um, and we, and at, you know, at some point, we could have almost lost everything that is unique and special about this place. But, you know, in the 1950s, the international effort to stop um, what we were doing, to try and put right the wrongs, to establish good governance and to do our best for this tremendously special place, gives me huge hope for the future. So I think I find Antarctica incredibly inspiring. So if we can harness the idea and the facts of Antarctica's to inspire us to take responsibility for our world more generally, then I think that there is huge hope for the future. I mean, I think Antarctica is, um, for most of us, and for me until six years ago when I took this job, is, is an imaginary place. It's a place that you read about, that um, you dream of, and you only ever dream of seeing for real. And yet it has the power to inspire us to do, to do better, um, to take responsibility. And I hope um, you know, hope that I can and the UK, UKHT can play some, some modest part in that.
0: A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha. It was produced by Jessica Norman with Ben Hewis as digital producer. Music was composed by Alec Hughes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A Voyage to Antarctica is part of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust's Antarctica in Sight program, celebrating and reflecting on the past 200 years of human endeavour across this fascinating continent. The Antarctica Insight Programme is supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. The UK Antarctic Heritage Trust is the charity championing the public understanding of and engagement with Antarctica. You can find out more at www.ukaht.org and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we'd love to hear from you. Please tweet at or message us to tell us why Antarctica matters to you. Next time I'll be talking to contemporary artists Peter Livisage, Lucy Orter, and Mark Rees about how Antarctica has inspired them and influenced their work. See you next week.